I think it's important for us to, to not forget that when God decided to become a man, to pierce history as God the Son, as Jesus Christ, He did so within a culture. He didn't sort of just appear out by Himself. He didn't just sort of kind of zap down to some remote place where there's no culture and then sort of create a bunch of families around Him and sort of create some sort of a subculture that sort of came together in a group into the culture of Judea and said, okay, look, we're bringing a new culture to you. That Jesus was born into a normal Jewish family. That God the Son was incarnated into a culture. I think it's also important for us to remember that when the church was born on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out on Pentecost, that the Holy Spirit birthed the church within a culture. That it happened at a Jewish festival. It happened uh, on, in, in a cultural gathering. And, and in fact, it happened when there were people from all other cultures kind of coming for that cultural gathering. It's important for us to remember that because I think we can, we can make the mistake of thinking, okay, you know, culture is bad, and so I need to stay away from culture. I need to hide myself away from anything that's cultural. And we can forget just the most basic of biblical truths that God pierced history. God came and shared himself within a culture. At the same time, there should be a recognition that all culture isn't good. That there are many things that Jesus did that were very countercultural. He did things, especially within the Jewish culture, that they were just shocked by it and taken back by it, and even at many times offended by. That's why you see Jesus saying several times in the Gospels, Blessed are those who are not scandalized because of me. They're not tripped up because of the things that I do. And so we see Jesus wasn't afraid to be counterculture, yet Jesus was one who mixed within culture. He's, in fact, he's so much mixed within culture. The religious leader said, man, he's a drunkard, he's a wine-bibber, you know, he's a, he's a glutton, a eater of meat that he is, you know, because he was so involved in culture. And it sort of begs this question, well, how do we deal with this? How do we bring a balance? Or how do we live out the gospel within culture? How does the gospel affect culture? How does culture affect the gospel? How do these things work together? And we see this coming to a head in, in the, Paul's letter to the Galatians. In fact, the whole reason that Paul's writing this, this letter to the different churches in the area of Galatia is because you see this happening. There's a cultural conflict. As the gospel's moving out from a culture or, or a Jewish cultural context into a completely Greek cultural context, there's a conflict that's taking place. Now, even the fact that this was going to happen shouldn't have shocked the early believers shouldn't, shouldn't have shocked the first disciples of Jesus. Though there was a reality that the first several thousand followers of Jesus were all Jewish and from a Jewish culture. Jesus had said, right, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Didn't he say that? Make disciples of all nations, teaching them to, to, to observe what I do and say. In fact, Jesus on his earthly ministry, several times the disciples were shocked that he didn't just sort of go against the culture by doing things like ministering directly to a woman, which a man would never do, but he actually, he actually commended the faith of Gentiles, of all people, people who are completely not Jewish at all. He commended their faith when they would come to him because they had a servant that was sick or a child that was sick. He commended their faith. And so they shouldn't have been surprised that the gospel was meant to go beyond the sort of cultural bounds of Judaism. And yet still, when it begins to happen, this causes a conflict. 
And so what we see in the first ten verses of chapter 2 is, is what happens here. We see how gospel, the gospel and culture sort of collide and how they're meant to be uh, working together. So we pick it up in verse 1. And Paul says that after 14 years, he went up to Jerusalem. And notice he took with him Barnabas and also Titus. There's a couple of things about this. Number one, it's important to recognize the fact that he took Titus means Titus was already a believer. And we'll see, of course, in this context, Titus was somebody who, who, uh, who came to Christ without any connection to Judaism, it seems. He had just heard Paul preaching, maybe after Paul was sort of shaking the dust off his feet in one of the synagogues, and, and he goes out to begin to preach among just whoever will listen. Titus hears the gospel. Titus gets saved. He gets radically changed. And so he, he comes to, to begin to sort of serve with Paul and with Barnabas in the ministry. Barnabas, if you remember, was his name actually means son of encouragement. And he was that guy who, when the early church was afraid of, of, of Saul, because Saul had been one who was persecuting Christians, that Barnabas was like, no, no, this guy's been changed, man. He's been radically changed. And so Barnabas was that son of encouragement to help, help Paul get sort of connected to the churches. And so these guys are together working to share the gospel. Which means that, guys, the gospel had already gone beyond the culture of Judaism. It's not as if Paul was going, hey, i got an idea. Let's go reach the pagans. What do you say we set up an outreach <coughs> in front of the temple of Aphrodite and see what happens, you know? And they're going, oh, that's bad. Don't do that. That's dangerous. He wasn't doing that. Paul was just saying, listen, I'm just sharing Jesus with whoever will listen. And these pagans, these heathens, these Gentiles, they're getting saved. They are being transformed by Jesus before our eyes. And it's got nothing to do with Judaism whatsoever. And so it's, it's important to recognize that the conflict that's happening is not happening because somebody was saying, hey, let's do something new and cutting edge. The conflict was happening because God was already saving people. <coughs> Excuse me. And it had nothing to do with the culture that the early church came out of. And so what happens is, Paul goes on to say in verse 2, he says, so I went up by revelation. <coughs> Excuse me. Ah, I really need to stop smoking. I'm kidding, I don't smoke. I'm just, it was a joke. You've seen if you're awake. Don't smoke. I actually never have. So I'm just kidding. Uh, Paul goes up to Jerusalem, he says, by revelation. Now, I, I need to make sure you guys understand something. There is a bit of conflict with this text as far as the timing. There are some Bible scholars who say that the, 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 the situation that Paul's describing in, in Galatians chapter 2 is, is actually around the time of, say, Acts chapter 11 or 12. There are others that say no, that the situation that he's referring to in Galatians chapter 2 is actually Acts chapter 15. I'll let you suss out the details and decide which one it is. And I'm not going to tell you which one I think it is. Because I'll tell you what, I don't think it matters. Because the point that Paul's trying to make is this, is about the gospel and culture. It's not so much about the timing of these things. But either way, Paul says, when he went up to Jerusalem, he went up by revelation. In other words, he went up by the leading of God. And what's interesting about the time frame is either way, you see Paul and Barnabas being led to do a certain thing in ministry as God speaks to this prophet Agabus. The first time God says, God speaks through Agabus and says there's going to be a famine in Jerusalem and there's going to be a need for aid to be sent forth. This is confirmed by the people that are hearing the prophecy and so they gather some funds. God says, let Paul and Barnabas take that funds to Jerusalem and so they go. The second scenario, which this could be, is when uh, Paul and Barnabas come back. They're in Antioch. Uh, and again, Agabus prophesies a- a- about some things that God wants to do. Uh, 
uh, the Spirit says specifically, it says in Acts 13, the Spirit says specifically, Adam, meaning separate unto me, Paul and Barnabas, for the work that I've set forth for them. So God is supernaturally speaking, probably through a prophecy to say these guys need to move forth in ministry. Either way, both times they were moved out by revelation, by a direct move of God. God speaking specifically for them to go do something. Why is that important? It's important because the whole context of Galatians, or one of the whole contexts, is Paul trying to say, listen, I'm not just sort of being led around by the other 12 apostles. They're not sort of ordering my steps and I'm just, they're sort of roadie and, and that's why I've gotten something wrong. I'm actually being led by the Lord in this. God is leading me and my team to take the gospel to these Gentiles. And so when he goes back to Jerusalem, it's not like he's going back to Jerusalem because he's in trouble. He's going because the Lord's saying, I want you to go up to Jerusalem for whatever the reason is. And he says that he communicated to them, he says, notice in verse 2, I communicated to them, that's the apostles, that's those that are in Jerusalem, I communicated to them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. Notice it's in the present tense. In other words, I didn't communicate a gospel that I used to preach now, but now I've changed my message and I preach this then. He says, I communicated to them the gospel which I preach, present tense, to the Gentiles. In other words, the same message that you heard me preach, you guys in Galatia, the same message I would preach today is the same message that I shared with the apostles. This is what I've been preaching. And he says he did this, not publicly, but privately among those who are reputation, in other words, among those leaders of the apostles. And he gives this reason in verse 2. He says, lest by any means I might, <clears throat> excuse me, I might have run in vain or, or had run in vain. Now what he's talking about there is not that Paul's worried that the gospel he was preaching was wrong. What Paul was concerned with, the reason he was talking to the disciples about these things, the apostles about these things, was he saying, listen, guys, this is what I'm preaching. I, I'm not, I want to make sure I know what you're preaching, but what I'm preaching is this. I'm preaching that salvation is by Christ alone. Uh, it, it by, it's in Christ alone, by faith alone. I'm sorry, I can't say it right. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. That's the gospel I'm preaching. And so I'm preaching that. I don't know what you guys are preaching, but I'm preaching that. He's not looking to, to say, okay, am I getting this right, guys? I hope I'm not getting it wrong. He's saying, listen, I'm preaching this gospel. Are you preaching something else? Are you preaching that salvation is by grace alone? Through faith plus circumcision in Christ alone? Is that what you're preaching? Because that's not the gospel I'm preaching. And so when Paul lays this out, he's not saying, when he says, I was afraid I was running in vain, he's not saying, I was afraid I was preaching the wrong gospel. He said, listen, am I causing some sort of division? Am I telling the Gentiles, you don't need to be circumcised, but you guys are telling the Gentiles they do need to be circumcised? I don't want there to be two separate churches here. I don't think God wants there to be two separate churches here. So what's the deal? What's going on with this? Paul's concern is that he's preaching a gospel that is encouraging unity despite cultural differences. That's what he's concerned with. He's saying, am I running in vain? Am I doing something that's empty? Because that's not really what God wants. God wants every church to have, you know, different, they want to divide over cultural differences. God wants that to happen. No, Paul's saying just the opposite. He's saying, listen, I, I, I don't want to be the one who's causing the, the, that kind of division. And yet he says in verse 3, he says, Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. Now, in other words, Paul's saying to the Galatian church, listen, when we went to Jerusalem, Titus didn't feel like he needed to be circumcised. The apostles didn't feel like he had to be circumcised. There was no you know, com, you know, compulsion to say, you need to do this to be saved. That doesn't have to happen. He's saying that because this is exactly what the Judaizers were saying. 
The guys who came in after Paul, the guys who came in and said, you know what, Paul's preaching isn't quite right. Really the truth is, you guys as Gentiles, you need to be circumcised, you need to fulfill the law of Moses if you're actually going to be saved. Paul said, hey, when I went to Jerusalem, I told the guys, this is what I'm preaching, I don't know what you guys are preaching. And they said that was cool. In fact, no one said, Titus, you should get circumcised. And he was a Greek, they knew he wouldn't have been circumcised. No one said, you've got to keep the law of Moses. So I don't know what these guys are preaching, but it ain't the gospel. And so there was this conflict in Paul's wanting to make sure, listen, here's what was going down with this conflict. Then he says this in verse 4. He uses some really strong words. Check it out. He says, And this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy on our our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus that they might bring us into bondage. Now think about this for a second. Paul is not just saying, listen, these guys, you know what? They're a little bit legalistic. You know, they're a little bit too into rules and regulations, you know, and I, we just have a, want to go a different direction. We just want to be a different style. Paul's not saying that. Paul's actually saying, these guys are pseudo-Christians. They're not really saved. And their desire is not to say, hey, we want to do something that's more culturally sensitive to the Jews. Their desire is to do this. It's to bring you into bondage. Those are strong words, aren't they? He's not saying these guys are, are, are teaching a different style of ministry. He's saying these guys are actually teaching a different gospel. Now this is important, guys, because this is the issue that we have to determine when looking at how we fellowship with people or looking at the church that we're supposed to be a part of. The issue needs to be the gospel. It needs to, it needs to end, it needs to begin and end there with the gospel. What gospel is being preached? Is it a gospel of Jesus plus tithe or come to prayer meeting or you know wear a suit or whatever the case might be? Is it Jesus plus these things? Is it Jesus minus repentance? Oh, it's yeah, just come to Jesus and you can still party and get drunk and sleep around. No, what big deal? There's grace, man. Is that the gospel? As long as you, you can do those things, as long as you stay part of the church, then you can do those things. Is that what they're teaching? Are they preaching Jesus plus themselves? Paul said, Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 4, 5. He said, we don't preach ourselves. In other words, you don't say, hey, follow the apostles, man. Come to the church of Paul. He says, we don't preach ourselves, but we preach Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves, your bondservants for his sake. It's the gospel that's at stake here. So when there's a conflict here, Paul's not saying it's not just a conflict of style, it's a conflict over the gospel. What is the gospel? Let me tell you something. For your own sake spiritually, and for all of our sakes corporately, we need to know what the gospel is. That's what we're studying through Galatians. What's the gospel? In a factual sense, in the, in the bare bones of it, Paul, when he wants to just kind of sum up the facts of the gospel, he says, he says, that which I received, I also give to you in, in 1 Corinthians 15. That Christ died according to the scriptures. That he was buried and that he rose from the dead according to the scriptures. That he was seen by all these people. In a nutshell, the, 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 the information of the gospel is Christ crucified, Christ resurrected, Christ ascended. That's the gospel in a nutshell. That's the information of it. In other words, the gospel is about Jesus, what he's, who he is, and what he's done for us. You can't add to that. You can't take away from that. 
Now it's important, guys, that we recognize that what the Judaizers here are preaching is not the Old Testament law, not just the Old Testament law. That's part of it. But they're also preaching the culture of Judaism. Listen to this. In Acts 15.1, when this situation finally comes to a head and the church has to address it so that everyone who is following Jesus knows what God would have them do, it gives us a situation. Luke writes this. He says, And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, saying this, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now Paul will say later on in the church of, or into this letter to the Galatians, he'll say, now neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is anything. He's saying the point isn't whether or not the, uh, it's, it's right or wrong to circumcise somebody. There's obviously a command in the scripture to be circumcised. Well, you can look in Acts chapter 16 where Paul actually encouraged Timothy to be circumcised so that they could be more effective in ministry to the Jews. It's a big step of faith as a, as a grown man to be circumcised for the sake of ministry, isn't it? And so it's not that Paul was you know, against the right of circumcision somehow. It was the point of if you're adding that to the gospel, you're actually preaching a false gospel. If you're saying this is the culture that needs to be and that is the gospel, you're actually preaching a false gospel. Now, what was going on here was the gospel was actually being threatened. Listen, the very gospel... The content of the gospel was being threatened by the religious culture of Judaism. We have to understand, guys, there's a big difference between our religious culture and the gospel. You might not realize this, but every single one of you have a certain religious culture. You go, yeah, but I don't really go to church that much. You still have a religious culture. It could be one of apathy towards faith. Or it could be that your parents have certain spiritual beliefs that come out and then what they do or what they say. But you have a religious culture that's influenced how you look at, at other people, how you look at God. You have that religious culture. And some of your religious culture might be good. It might be based in truth. It might be solid. But some of it might be just full on wrong. And the first place we need to look is, okay, according to the religious culture that I'm from, what is the gospel? What's the good news? Let me kind of differentiate between the religious gospel or the religious information of Judaism with the message of the gospel. Paul uses the word bondage on purpose. Here's what Judaism was saying. Here's what the religion of Judaism was saying. Not what the Old Testament was saying. Paul will talk about that in Galatians chapter 3, what the Old Testament law was for. That has a good message for us, and we'll see that in Galatians chapter 3. But what the culture of Judaism was saying, it was this. It was saying, you need to be controlled, so here's the rules you need to keep. Be suspect of a church that says, here's your five steps to holiness. Seven steps to sanctification. Here's your formula for uh, a, a peaceful life. Because guys, formulas, rules, regulations have no benefit for us. There's nothing wrong with discipline. Don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with structure. Both those things are good and even biblical. But when, listen, when people start saying, here, if you do these things, 
If you can find some control in this way, if you're controlled by these things, ah, then you'll be right with God. That's not the gospel. The gospel isn't, you need to be controlled, so keep these rules. Listen, the gospel is, listen, you need to be transformed, and Jesus died to make that a reality. Big difference. One says, you need to have an outward conformity or a religious experience to make sure that you're right with God. The other one says, no, God has to do something. God himself has to change you from the inside out. And Christ died to make that a reality. Do you see the difference? One brings into bondage more rules, more regulations, more religion. The other one brings freedom. Lord, it's not me that has to change myself. It's you that's transforming me. I just cooperate by faith. I just learned to walk with you in a simple relationship based in faith for what you've provided in me or for me. And so Paul's saying, listen, there's a huge difference. And because there's a huge difference, listen, these guys are actually false brethren. Now, please don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that other church, anytime a church says, here's your five steps and they're false brethren, please don't say, please don't leave here today and go, oh, dude, that guy at Servant Church, he said that you guys are a false cult because you said the five steps of holiness. No, that's not what I'm saying, okay? I, sometimes I say, I got three points for you today. I'm not given a formula. It's just a way for us to sort of, you know, assimilate information. So I'm not talking about that. But I am saying this. All of us have a responsibility to say, Lord, is this teaching me to trust you more? Is this teaching me to walk with you more? Is this teaching me to believe what you say about me more? Or is this teaching me to trust myself more? Is this teaching me to, to work harder, to add more rules? Which is it doing? Because the gospel always leads us to Christ. The gospel is always saying, trust Jesus, full stop. And so Paul, he calls these things, these guys false false brethren. And he says in verse 5, he says, listen, we didn't yield submission to these guys even for one hour that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. If you have the uh, English Standard Version, the ESV, it says, I think it says it better, it says that the, go- the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So no one twists the gospel and confuses you about it. You see, guys, listen, Jesus wants to change you because you need to be changed. Jesus can change you, and you need to be changed. He can transform us. He does so by making us, giving us, providing for us a position with God, a perfect, unchangeable position with God, a righteousness that we'll talk about later on in the book of Galatians. He does that for us. God can do this. Now check this out. They have this conflict. They're wrestling with these things. And what happens in verse 6? Paul says, But from those who seem to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. He says, God shows no personal favoritism to no man. He says, For those who seem to be something added nothing to me. He says, But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the circumcision had been committed to me, underline that word committed, committed to me as the gospel for the circumcision was to Peter, then he goes on to say that they give me the right hand of fellowship. Now, what's, what's he talking about? Who, who are the they that he's talking about? At first read, it might seem that Paul's being disrespectful to whoever these people are, but he's really not. 
Paul's not, he's talking about the other apostles, and he's not trying to be disrespectful to them. He's saying, listen, you guys might think, ooh, God can only speak through the twelve. God can only use them. But you know my story, you know my testimony. We talked about this last week, didn't we? That Jesus was the one who confronted me. Jesus was the one who taught me the gospel. Jesus was the one who called me and sent me out. And the other apostles recognize this. They recognize even the things that I write as scripture. But there's a reality, guys, that the Judaizers are saying, oh, no, no, it's got to come from these guys. If it doesn't come from these guys, it can't be gospel truth. Now, here's the deal. Paul's trying to, to, to basically deal with the reality that, you know, listen, it's not who the apostles are as much as who sent the apostles out, who gave the apostles their information. It's not so much them as a resource, but what is their source, you see. There are, are churches, guys, and groups and organizations that I strongly disagree with in a lot of important areas. And yet, guess what? They can, God can use them to speak things that are so good and so profound that I think, man, that's, that's totally the Lord. Because it's not them as a resource that's the issue. It's the source. Who's speaking through them? Are they speaking from the Word of God? Are, is what they speaking, is it resonating because it's coming from the Spirit of God? Does it line up with the Gospel? Hey, I might disagree with them on some really important stuff, stuff that would keep me from actually being a part of their, their church, but it doesn't keep me from recognizing they're my brother and God can work through them. It's, the, it's, the, it's what the source of, of what they're doing, the source of their ministry that's important. And that's what Paul's trying to say. Listen, you know, you guys might think these guys are something. They seem to be of this great reputation, but these guys were just guys telling you what Jesus said. These guys were just testifying of here. We certainly saw Jesus do. Here's what we heard Jesus say. This is what we saw. We saw Jesus alive. They were just guys telling you about Jesus. And I'm doing the same thing. As the same kind of eyewitness of, of his resurrection, that's what I'm doing. And so it's the information being shared that's important, not the person who's sharing through it. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that a person's character doesn't matter. Of course it does. A person's character, you know, or lack thereof, can disqualify them from being preaching the gospel. Paul talks about that in, in, in great detail. But the point that Paul's trying to make here is, listen, this is not about, hey, who owns the gospel? Who does the gospel belong to? This is about who's rightly stewarding the gospel. In fact, this is one of the conclusions we come from this text, is that Paul comes to this conclusion about the gospel and culture, that we have to understand the gospel is not about who owns it. Does the gospel belong to Western culture? Does the gospel belong to Greek culture? Yes or no? Does the gospel belong to British culture? Does the gospel belong to American culture? You guys shake your head no strongly when I say American. Why is that? <laughs> no, it's true, it doesn't. The gospel doesn't belong to any culture or any man. But a person or a group whether that culture be the culture of a country or the culture of a church, stewards the gospel. Do you know what I mean by steward? A stewardship is, is, is when you have the responsibility for something that belongs to somebody else. The gospel is God's gospel. It's his revelation. It's about him. We just have a stewardship. That's what, this is what Paul said. Listen to this in 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 and 2. Paul said, Let a man so consider us, that means him and the other apostles, let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. And he said, it's, it's appointed unto a, a steward that he must be found faithful. 
So we have a stewardship of the gospel. So the issue is, the gospel doesn't belong to one culture. Now guys, listen, we have a, a specific kind of church culture, a specific kind of style. We're very casual, aren't we? We try to be reverent, but we're casual. Nobody really cares how you dress as long as you don't look, you know, immodest, you know? We're not really bothered by how you dress. We have a casual culture, you know? We're very laid back about things. We start at 1030-ish, you know? You know, we, 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 we have sort of a, a laid back sort of style. We, we think it's very important that we teach verse by verse, line upon line. We see that as an, a, an important aspect of how people get discipled. We, we think music should be emotionally familiar, so we try to use contemporary music when we can. We like hymns as well, but even those we try to kind of play in a contemporary way. That's kind of our style, it's kind of our culture. Not a big deal to most of you guys because you're here in the West and you've probably been to churches like it. But here's the reality, guys. We don't own the, the gospel. It's not our verse-by-verse teaching or casual you know, atmosphere that defines what the culture is. It's we want to say, okay, Lord, we want to be good stewards of the gospel, and so we want to communicate the gospel to the culture that we're in. And what's the best way we can do that? We live in a literate culture. We should teach the gospel literally, <laughs> in, in, in a sense that we are using the literature, especially the inspired word of God, to bring that forth. Lord, we live in, in, a, in a society that, that, that you know, values the arts and creativity and, 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 and music specifically. So we would try to, we want music to, to grow and improve to a place that is it's culturally and emotionally familiar. There's nothing wrong with that. But that itself isn't the gospel. That's just a culture. And we just need to steward the gospel within that culture, you see. Now, he uses this word committed, and that word literally means entrusted. Entrusted. Remember the parable of the talents that Jesus talked about, where he gave you know he gave one person five one person five talents, one person ten, one person one something like that, and and he gives them these talents which are actually you know a, a, a part of money or a denomination of money, and he says you know occupy or do business until I come. Of course, there's the guy that has five talents and he doesn't he doesn't double them or he does double them and the guy has ten likewise, but the guy with one talent what does he do? He buries it right. And Jesus condemns that guy. And, and the thing that he's talking about there is this issue of stewardship. Are we being good stewards of what God has given us? Hey, sometimes we are people that have five talents, but every one of those talents is supposed to be spent on the furtherance of the gospel. Sometimes we're people that have two talents, but every one of those talents, both those talents are supposed to be used for the furtherance of the gospel. Maybe you only have one talent. Hey, that talent's supposed to be used for the furtherance of the gospel. And Paul says, listen, I don't care what, how many talents you have. I don't care what kind of culture you're in, but you're there. The gospel might be demonstrated and communicated there. And you have a stewardship to use the gospel in that place. This is what Paul's saying. He's saying, listen, I've been given a stewardship to take the gospel to Gentiles. They've been given a steward to take the gospel to the Israel. But it's the same gospel. And we're just trying to be, it's not our gospel, it's God's gospel. We're just trying to be good stewards of it. Then what does he say in verse 8? He says, notice, for he, for he, speaking of Jesus, who works effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised, that would be to the Jews, also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. Now, it's important we recognize that what Paul's saying here is not that they had two different gospels, but the gospel was to be cha- or was to be communicated in different ways. In other words, the gospel doesn't change, but the mode of communication changes. 
Paul's saying, listen, when these guys went to the, to, to the Jews, when he went to the synagogues and they went to the hour of prayer and they began to preach the gospel and they began to preach Jesus, they explained Jesus in the context of the Old Testament because not only does that speak of, of Jesus, but also because that's what these guys were familiar with. They understood the Old Testament, therefore he communicated to them within the boundaries of the Old Testament. That's what they did. And well done. They were good stewards with the gospel there. But we, when God began to open the doors for us to talk to these guys who were of Greek culture, we communicated the gospel within their culture. That's why you see, like in Acts chapter 17, when Paul is talking to all these different philosophers on Mars Hill and begins to share with them, he quotes their poets. He talks about, he talks about they had a, if you remember, they had a, a certain podium that didn't have a God on it, an idol on it. It just said, you know, this was given over to the unknown God. In other words, in case we forgot one, we'll just leave one blank. It's kind of what they were doing. And Paul says, hey, I want to tell you about the, that, that guy. That's what I want to talk about, the unknown God, the God that you really don't understand because that's the only true God. And he begins to share with them. He speaks the gospel to them in their culture. And Paul says this, listen, he who was working in Peter... And in the other guys with Israel was working in me. Notice he says, he who was working in me. The Bible says this, Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 16. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. In the original language, in the, in the Greek, the word my is a, is a specific word that's only used for emphasis. It's to tell us that when Jesus said it, he did say, when I build my church, when I build my church, who's building the church? Who's bringing the gospels to the nations? Jesus is. Who's he doing it through? You and me. And so Paul's saying, listen, it's Jesus who's built his church. If Jesus is working in me to the Gentiles, we should praise God. If he's working with you and the Jews, we should praise God. Why do we have to battle over the difference of the culture? Now notice what he says in verse 9. He says, And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that I should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Now, important. James, Cephas is another word for Peter, John. These were the guys that were considered the leaders of the Jerusalem church, the leaders of the church at large, really. These were sort of the apostles of the apostles, so to speak. The inner three. Now, here's a reality. There's a, a reality that, that these guys, when they met Paul, when Paul said, hey, here's the gospel I'm preaching, I know what you guys are preaching. And they go, yeah, amen, that's the gospel we're preaching. That they said, wow, all right, sounds good, man. Right hand of fellowship. We are partners in the gospel. You reaching Jews, are you reaching Gentiles? We reaching Jews. Right on. They gave them the right hand of fellowship. They recognized God sent you to them the way, same way he sent us to these guys. They recognized that. And so there was a unity there. But notice what it says. Notice how Paul says this. It's a really important. Paul says in verse 9, when they what? When they perceived the grace that had been given to me. When they perceived the grace. Guys, listen. We so often bicker among ourselves, even within a particular fellowship, about that culture versus that culture. 
oh, we, we don't like that culture because they're weird, they're different. They don't understand what we're like here. Guys, I can't tell you how many times people have said to me, I've been here in, in Norwich for five years. It happened less in London, but it's happened lots in here. Five and a half years in Norwich, how many times people have said to me, well, you know, we don't do that here. That might have worked in America, but we don't do that here. What a load of rubbish. You know what that is? Our culture is better than yours. Sorry. We don't, I, I'll tell you the truth, guys. Maybe it is, but it doesn't make a hill of beans. It's got nothing to do with culture. It's got to do with the gospel. I don't care how you do it in Great Britain. I don't care how they do it in America. I care about the gospel. How is the gospel being brought forth? We can do that to each other. One of the things that I love about our little fellowship is the fact that we are so radically different. We have people that are totally church, people that are unchurched, people from you know, really Pentecostal backgrounds, people from very strict conservative backgrounds. We have people from different nations, ethnicities. We have people from all different kind of backgrounds who've been at church for, for their whole life, people who have never been to church before they came here. We have this radical different mix. You know what that is? A collagen, a collagen, that's, I made a new word, a collagen, that's a new word, I made that up. A collision of cultures. There's a collision of cultures. You know what that's good? It's good because it forces us to look, okay, what's cultural and what's gospel? What is, here's the the church culture I'm comfortable with, and here's the gospel that is everlasting, that is true, that sets men free. It forces us to look at that. Guys, I hope you know that this church isn't exactly what I thought it was going to be. (laughs) This isn't the culture that I was wanting to create. Praise God it's not the culture I was on to create. Because you know what culture I wanted to create? The one that was the one that I was most comfortable in. The one that I used to have when I did youth work in the United States. But that's not the culture that God wants to create. God wants to create something new. He wants to do something fresh, something that is about only the gospel, and it develops its own unique culture as it expresses the gospel within the culture that it's in. Now, we don't need to listen bicker about culture. We need to do what we saw that these guys did, that James and John and Peter did. They perceived the grace of God in Paul and Barnabas and Titus' life. They perceived the grace of God. Guys, ours is not to judge somebody else's culture or church style. Ours is to say, Lord, can we see evidence of grace? What's the evidence of grace? What does that mean? Well, here's an evidence of grace. Are people realizing that they need to be changed? Is there evidence of the grace of repentance? The people, are people broken over their sin? Man, I've got to turn away from this. Is there evidence of that? Oh, a humility before God, a brokenness, knowing that they need to repent of their sins. That's an evidence of grace. Is there, is there an evidence of, of the grace of forgiveness? Is there, is there a... a, a an atmosphere where people are going, man, there's mercy, there's forgiveness. The Lord, the Lord loves, the Lord restores. Is that, is, do you see evidence of that grace? Is there evidence of, of, of changed lives? Not just people knowing they need to be changed, but actually people changing. We see that they're not what they used to be. They're growing and they're changing. Do we see that evidence? Do we see the evidence of fruit where people are, are reaching out to others and others are being pulled in? Oh, do we see evidence of grace? Guys, that's how we should measure. We shouldn't measure by, you know, I don't really like that style. If they just had a little bit more bass, you know, then, then God would really move, you know. They need a drum set, baby. If they had a drum set, man, God's spirit would be poured out. 
If you would just go back to topical teaching, that's where, where the Holy Spirit wants to move, man. If you would wear a suit and tie, then maybe God would show up. I mean, these are stupid things, but these are kinds of things that go through our heads. The bottom line is, guys, we judge on cultural issues that have nothing to do with the gospel, and we should be looking for evidences of grace. Is God moving? Is God challenging? Is God changing? Is Jesus the focus? Is the gospel the center? Now, I want you guys to keep your finger in Galatians and go back to to, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9 really quick. Just quickly, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I want to talk about this just for a couple minutes before we start to wrap this up. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul talks about sort of his method in sharing the gospel, his his motivation to, to take the gospel to the world. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19, he says, For though I am free from all men, in other words, I'm not under the influence of any specific culture, I have made myself a servant to all that I, w- I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win the Jews. And to those who are under the law as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law as without law, not being without law toward God, but under the law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak, that I might become, I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I might partake of it with you. Now listen, guys. Paul is not saying him becoming all things to all men is the gospel. Paul's saying, I become all things to all men so that I can share the gospel. I meet people in the culture they are at. We have to grow in our discernment about what's cultural and what's commanded. It's commanded in the New Testament that we not be drunk. We'll talk about that when we get to Galatians 5. Drunkenness is, God says, those who practice such things won't inherit the kingdom of God. It's not acceptable. But drinking is cultural. It is. American Christians, they almost don't drink at all, for the most part. Very rare. It's not, you, it's, I, I've met a rare pastor who actually, who actually indulges in a glass of wine or a beer. It just doesn't happen that often in certain parts of America. It's, just, it's more conservative there. Here, it doesn't seem to be a big deal. It's not a big deal to have a beer. I personally like that culture better. <laughs> That's another issue. <laughs> the bottom line is, it's a culture thing. But drunkenness, it's a command thing. You know? Music styles, it's a cultural thing. There's, there's hardly any churches in the United States that have anything but contemporary music. There are very few. The, the, the vast majority of people who go to church in, uh, who go to a gospel-believing church in the United States of America, the vast majority go to where there's contemporary worship. But you go to certain parts of Eastern Europe, just the opposite. They have very contemporary, the gospel-believing churches are very contemporary, are very, I'm sorry, uh, traditional type music. It's just different culture. So what's commanded? That we praise God. <laughs> That's what's commanded, you see? And so we can make issues about culture that aren't really, we need to be issues. We need to focus on the gospel. And we need to say, okay, Lord, what kind of cultural changes that we need to be sensitive to so that we can be more effective in communicating the gospel? We never change the gospel. In fact, sometimes, guys, when we say, 
our culture is the gospel, when we do that, we actually have changed the gospel, you see. Now, going back to Galatians, I'm almost done. They gave Paul the right, Paul and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. He said, you know, we, we see the evidence of God's grace. God's using you to reach the culture of the Gentiles. Praise God for that. We see that people are coming to repentance. They're believing in Jesus. They're casting down their idols. Praise God. Radical stuff. They're being changed. They're going from worshiping God through sexual sin to turning away from sexual sin. Praise God. Radical stuff's happening. Then he says this. He says, their only desire was this. Verse 10, they desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I also was eager to do. This is important. It's important because as Paul's had this conflict about the gospel and culture, one thing stands true. In whatever culture God calls you to take the gospel to, you have a responsibility to demonstrate the gospel practically. Did you hear that? Whatever culture God calls you to, You have a responsibility to demonstrate the culture practically. Specifically, it has to do with taking care of the poor. Now, this is important. Really quick, let me harp on this with a couple things. One is the reality that if you remember when Jesus announced his ministry beginning, that he was the Messiah, right? Do you remember what happened in Luke chapter 4? He's at the synagogue. He opens the scroll in Isaiah to Isaiah, and he reads these words. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to what? It's the first thing he says. Preach the gospel to the poor. Why? Because the poor are often the most marginalized in society. They're often the ones that are most pushed down. Now I say that both because of what I observe and also because of what I've experienced. I grew up... uh, by American standards, very poor. Um, to a point where, actually, when I was about 14, my older brothers had to move out of the house early, and um, my dad uh, was really not in a good place, and so we were homeless. We were actually uh, sneaking into this place of work with, when this, the owner of the business didn't know this, sneaking in and sleeping on the floor on a mat for about, uh, I don't know, about a month and a half. We were homeless like that. I'll to tell you, it does something to you. It really messes you up. Because I'll tell you, when I was homeless, I felt so ashamed of the fact that we didn't have a home that we could, we could live in. I felt so ashamed that I had to go to my friend's house and ask if I could take a shower there. I mean, it was so amazing how marginalized I felt. I, I, was, I got suspended in that about a month and a half, two months time. I got suspended three times from school for fighting because every time someone would tease me about anything, I'd think that they were, they were ostracizing me or they, I was paranoid that they were against me because I was poor. And so I would get mad and I'd you know, want to defend myself and start throwing blows. And there's an, amazing, this is, there's an amazing thing that happens that we can marginalize the poor. We can kind of push them aside. I, I've heard so many stories of churches where churches who are really trying to materially help the poor among them, making sure that they have what they need. They're, you know, they, can, they, they don't go hungry. Yet they still are kind of like, they'll do that, but people don't actually fellowship with them. I have to say to you, I have to be honest about this. I've seen more of this here than I did see in the States where there's a marginalization in the classes between rich, poor, middle class. And it's not gospel, man. It's not a demonstration of the gospel. When a person who's middle class assumes that someone who's poor is because they're lazy, 
You're judging men. That's not the gospel. If you relate to them, I'll write to them better. I'll, I'll, I'll be around uh, with them more when they get the kind of job that I think is acceptable. Bogus. And yet I've seen that attitude sort of come out. Not just in work areas either. It's in, it's, it can be in dress, how people dress. can be in the kind of music they like. All kinds of things that got nothing to do with the gospel. It's, the, it's, the, it's not just the issue of poverty, but it's the issue of the fact of marginalization that, that the apostles were saying, listen, we need to make sure people are not marginalized because they're from a different group. We'll see more of this next week. But there's also this reality of the poor. In fact, Paul writes to the church in Corinth about when they'd have the agape feast, the Lord's Supper, they'd all come together you know, once a week and then have a shared meal, sort of like what we do on a Friday night. And uh, basically he was saying, listen, you guys are abusing that because some of you guys are going in there and you're eating like pigs. You're just scarfing down and hardly leaving anything for anybody else. And he says, don't you have homes to eat in? And Paul says to this, this to them in 1 Corinthians 11, 22, he says, or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? Because that agape feast was probably the one time a week where many of the very poorest people in that church community could get a decent meal. And the rich would come and they'd bring their, their, their lovely foods to share, but they made sure they got their good portion first. Now guys, thankfully we don't really see that happening in our bringing shares. <laughs> but there's a reality, guys, that we can, we can have this kind of a mindset where we just don't, we, we sort of want to shame people almost because they're, they're poor. Now, remembering the poor, though, isn't just about giving them what they need, making sure they don't feel bad because they're poor. That's important. It's also dealing with the reality that sometimes people are poor because they are lazy. Paul deals with this. Check this out. In, in Titus, Paul writes this. Titus chapter 1. Paul says, a prophet of their own. And Paul's writing to Titus when Titus was, later on when Titus became a pastor of, of, a, of the churches, overseer of the churches in Crete, okay, on the island of Crete. He says, a prophet of their own said this, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharp, sharply that they may be, may be secured in the faith. In other words, he says, listen, this testimony, this cultural reality that the, the Cretans were lazy gluttons and never wanted to work, rebuke them. Hey, if you're a Christian, you've got no right to be lazy, Paul said. Tell Titus, if you're a Christian and you're being lazy, you need to repent. Because that doesn't represent the gospel. Paul said this to the Thessalonians, uh, in 2 Thessalonians, he says, If anyone will not work, neither shall they eat. If someone's being lazy and then kind of coming around the fellowship and going, Oh, oh, ah, hunger pain, haven't eaten in days. Trying to get people to feel sorry for them and give them food. Paul says, no, no, no. If they won't work, don't give them any food. Don't feed them. So remembering the poor is not marginalizing them for their poor, but also not showing them favoritism because they're poor. The law talks about that. The Old Testament law even says, you shall not show favoritism because a man is poor. You don't do that. No. What does the gospel say? The gospel says, listen, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And so remembering the poor says this. Listen, I don't care what social economic background you came from. I don't care how much money you have. Let's just make sure that we're living for the gospel. And if we're living for the gospel, then if you're my brother and you're hurting and you need help, I'm going to help you. If that help means I give you stuff, I give you stuff. If that help means I say, hey, bro, here's a job, then I say, here, bro, here's a job. 
but we remember the poor. We demonstrate the gospel by how we treat each other. In fact, let me close with this verse. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 8 9. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. See, guys, here's the deal. We communicate the gospel within our culture, not necessarily by our culture. I think the biggest hindrance of the church in the United States is the gospel preached is a middle-class gospel. You think I'm exaggerating? I'm not, am I? We preach the gospel of our country is prosperous because of the blessings of God. Therefore, it's God's will that we all be prosperous. And I'm not talking about just the guys on TV. And in, 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 in the circle of churches that I'm, I'm with, it's not so much of be rich. It's, it's, it's more of, you know, be middle class. Or they tell us as pastors, try to live about at the mean income of the congregation, which is actually good advice, except for everybody wants to plant churches in upper middle class neighborhoods. So they can live at the mean income of the congregation. Nobody wants to plant churches in the urban cities or anything. We preach by our lifestyle. We preach within our culture, but we don't preach our culture. Nothing wrong with being middle class. Nothing wrong with being rich. Don't let anybody, that's, a, that's, a, that's the opposite effect that we've seen happen, where there's bigotry against those who are wealthy. The Bible doesn't rebuke those who are, are, are wealthy. It just rebukes them if they're not willing to share, or if they're being puffed up thinking, look, I'm better because I'm wealthy. The reality is, guys, that we should not be distracted by these cultural differences. We should say, okay, Lord, what culture... Did you, did you put me in? What, 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 where have you pre-appointed my, my seasons and my boundaries that I might know you, that I might proclaim you, that I might share you? And how can I do that effectively here? You see, guys, I, you know what I've noticed? I've noticed that if I'm casual about the issue of alcohol here, that there are brothers and sisters who don't have the freedom to use that freedom and they stumble into alcohol and they get drunk. And I have to be very careful. At the same time, I've noticed if my attitude is of, oh, you have beer in your fridge, maybe that's not a good idea. Here, I also stumble people. And so I say, okay, Lord, how do I do this? How do I, how do I say, okay, I want to reach this culture where it is. How do I use that freedom? How do I use that freedom? When is it okay for me to have a glass of wine or a beer? When is it not okay? Which is going to best communicate the freedom? So I've got to take that on a case-by-case basis. I think about how I live. What kind of holidays do we take? What kind of clothes do we buy? I don't mean that because I'm so concerned about style issues as much as just, you know, if I'm always buying like really expensive clothes and then always saying, guys, we've got to really be thinking about giving to the poor, is that communicating a twisted message? Do you see what I'm saying? Not wanting to judge each other, but just trying to say, Lord, how do I do this? And guys, this is why, this is why it requires us to walk in the Spirit and say, Lord, we want to be about the gospel, not about our culture. And we want to just communicate the gospel within culture. We want to demonstrate what Jesus demonstrated. We want to give to the poor among us because that's what Jesus did. We were poor in spirit. <laughs> we were spiritually bankrupt and Jesus gave himself that he might make us rich. We want to demonstrate that by how we treat each other. I want to be rich in grace towards you guys. Rich in forgiveness and mercy. 
That's how God wants us to be. Let's not get trapped in thinking we have to look like this culturally or we have to, uh, you know, this culture is better than that culture. No, let's just focus on the gospel and just pray for wisdom and how we can share the gospel within the culture God has us in.